There is that version of science communicator who like slides into frame and they're like, I'm so excited about this. And there's that version who's like standing in front of a whiteboard. I would put myself in the middle of that. Like I kind of have a conversation. I want to convince you to be excited about the thing I'm excited about. Welcome to How to Make a Science Video. Should science communication be objective? You're listening to Sophie Ward and Simon Clark, and together we have over 10 years of experience on YouTube and a SciComm master's degree under our belts. And by our belts, I mean my belt. I'm still not bitter about that. <laughs> we both make science videos and we're both curious about how to best share science with the world. This week we're asking, should science be objective? To find out how she does it, we're talking to... I'm Angela Collier, and I post on A Collier Astro. And what kind of videos do you make? Broadly, I would say science videos or data videos, just anything I'm interested in at the time and make a video about it. Yeah, it's a pretty broad range. I feel like you've covered personal statements, you've covered like yeah. personal experiences like a researcher. I like that as well. When you like just have something that comes to mind and you want to explain it in your way, I think that's really nice. But... Our key question, seeing as this is a podcast a bit about science communication, do you think of yourself as a science communicator? It's a hard question because when I started making videos, I was adamant that I did not want to be a science communicator because that job's very hard and people don't like science communicators. Um, but I do, I like talking <laughs> about science. I'm so sorry, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's not that I don't like them. It's that the people who want science information, I feel like the audience really would rather hear it from like professional scientists. And when you switch over to being like communicator of science, it's almost like they don't appreciate what you're doing as much. Mm. But maybe my opinion has changed on that since I definitely am a science communicator. I can't not <laughs> call myself that. So you're like a begrudging science communicator. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so do you think your opinion on that has changed then? Do you see kind of the value of science communicators? Now you are one. I don't want to say it that way. I do think science communication is very valuable and it's very, very hard. And it's just the response. I, I'm, I'm thinking of like the way Neil deGrasse Tyson will like tweet like, Ugh. why do we celebrate the new year? It's just the sun mm. and the earth and it's... People make fun of him a lot, but it's like he's talking to children. Like, be polite to this man who's trying to teach children. Or they get mad at Bill Nye, and it's like, well, you liked Bill Nye when you were 13, because that's who he's for. And so I just kind of wanted to keep myself out of that. But I'm in it now. I'm deep in it. <laughs> How did you end up doing this? Because you did a PhD, mm -hmm. and you were a research scientist. So how did you end up making videos? It's kind of embarrassing, really. I wanted to make this giant video about sexual harassment in astronomy um, because it's a huge problem. And I thought it would be weird to make a YouTube account and just post one seven-hour video on sexual assault. So I recorded this other talk I had given at the European Astronomy Conference about being a first-generation graduate student. And then a week later, I was like, okay, now I can put this up and not feel weird about it. Okay. <laughs> so I did that. And I kind of sat on that for a few months, I think. And then I was like, well, that was kind of fun. 
maybe I should just make videos. And that was like a year ago. Mm -hmm. So were there any people that when you first made, I guess, those two videos, I mean, were there specific creators that you were inspired by, either in content or in format? (laughs) Sure. I actually don't watch a lot of science YouTubers at all. I watch a lot of God, they're like the Nebula crowd of people, which I mean, I know there are scientists on Nebula, but like I watched Lindsay Ellis. I like Jenny Nicholson a lot. I like Dan Olson, especially his stuff on crypto and scammers. I find myself doing a lot of scammer stuff. So just the general video essayist, I guess. That's why my videos are very long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see that inspiration though. And I think You've probably been compared like various times to like Jenny Nicholson. Jenny Nicholson, definitely. I think yeah. I've seen that in comments and stuff. So I don't know if, how you take that. And we don't have to put that in. I feel bad for Jenny Nicholson. It's just like, she's just like all these people riding my coattails, probably. I don't know. You're so self deprecating. <laughs> like, that's such a thing in your videos as well. I'm, I'm sitting there like, no, Angela Gale, like, you're great. Like, <laughs> live it. Sorry, I don't this didn't mean to become a pep talk. Just this is such a sidebar. Say so you're into scamming videos. Do you watch those videos of people scamming scammers back? I love those videos. Yeah, those are fun. I do like those. They make me feel sad sometimes for the scammers. Yeah, it's Because, like, I know that it's just their job, but it's also like you, you could not do that as a job. Yeah. I have made a joke where I could get on Etsy and like sell crystals, just like I've made quantum crystals for your frequency and it'll cure your cancers and stuff. And people would buy them, Hmm. but I would just feel so bad. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it would work. Damn, the one thing holding you back is your morals. It's a shame. Wow, Angela. You're a scientist. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Oppenheimer is out right now. Oh, gosh, yeah. So could you maybe give us a little summary as well of your kind of channel's journey? Because you have had a sort of sudden tip, what it seems like, into having like quite a lot of views on your channel, quite a lot of attention on your channel. Like what sort of happened there? What video was it if there was just one? So I got monetized in January of this year and I had been posting videos for like four or five months, like in earnest. And I had 200 subscribers or something. And then I think a bunch of postdocs started postdocs in January. So they searched postdoc on YouTube and my video about how postdocs are kind of a scam really caught on. And it got like a hundred thousand views, I think. And I got a thousand subscribers from there. And then a few months later, I did that video on string theory where I played Binding of Isaac. And I think that went like viral. I don't know how people define that, but so many people watched that and like put it on 4chan and stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I got a bunch of subscribers. Wow, I was not expecting a 4chan yeah. I was surprised to see it because they don't really like women over there. So. No. Yeah. <laughs> but did you see that in your comments as well or no? In the analytics, it told me that it was from 4chan like a science board, I guess. And I was like, huh, I'm not going to go look at that. I'm not going to go see what they said about it. But Very wise <laughs> a bunch of people clicked. Yeah. Well done. Wow, yeah, 4chan. That is, I wouldn't have expected that at all. That's that like is. saying I went viral because of Pinterest. Like, you know, I was, I, that, that's, that's two worlds that I was not expecting to collide. <laughs> How do you feel about it, Angela? Is it been a bit overwhelming? Uh, yes. I did make a video and I said something like innocuous, about how capitalism is bad. And one of the comments was like, you have an audience. You have a duty not to say things like capitalism is bad. And I was like, I have an audience. I'm just like a normal person. And then I was like, well, I guess, I guess if 100,000 people watch a video, that's an audience. But I don't know. I still don't feel like 
I'm an actual YouTuber. I feel very, it's weird even talking about it right now to you, actual YouTubers who have been doing it for years and years. Because <laughs> this, is, this isn't your full-time job, is that correct? No, I work like at a company. I do computational physics simulations and stuff. Oh, cool. So I do that all week and I just do this for fun. And do you think you'd ever want to do science communication as a full-time career? Maybe. I don't think I would ever do like creator content as a career just because it's very precarious. And I don't want to judge you based on your accents, but in America, uh, health insurance is tied to like your job. So so I couldn't just like be like, maybe YouTube would be great and I'll just pay $4,700 a month for health insurance. Yeah. 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 Well, I suppose that brings us to the big question, which is, and interpret this however you like to begin with, how do you approach making a new video? What's the first step in making a new video? I guess I just read something interesting or something fun about science. And I'm like, that would be cool. And then I just think about it for like seven weeks and then I write it down. So like I have this video about fluoride, like in toothpaste, and that just happened because I was in a Target and I was buying fluoride toothpaste and someone was just like fluoride. And I was like, whoa, there are people who don't know about fluoride. I should teach people about fluoride. So I did that. And that one was fun. So do you ever have that barrier of, oh, I should just be making videos on what I'm a professional in though, or what my knowledge is? Like I should stay in my lane. Do you ever feel that way? I'm not telling you to stay in your lane. (laughs) I very much have no lane and I veer from lane to lane. But it's nice to see you making videos on a range of subjects. But do you ever doubt that and think, oh, maybe I shouldn't? It's a great question. I don't think I have gone out of my lane. Good answer. I guess I think it at the most basic terms, like I've taken a bunch of chemistry classes. I know about fluoride. I could talk Mm. about fluoride. And I also try in all of my videos to be like, I'm not a medical doctor. Like I learned this in a college course in chemistry just so people don't get confused about what I'm saying or misinterpret what I'm saying as expert advice in an area I'm not an expert in. So I I think it's important to mention that. But I would never, for example, do a video on actual like medicine. I would never be like the best cancer treatments. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because that that would be a bad idea. But I would maybe be like, here's how... proton therapy works mm-hmm. I think I could talk about that yeah it's I just think it's so refreshing to see not refreshing because I think science communicate communicators often know to be careful about this but just to see someone who's openly being careful and being like this is where my expertise ends I want to talk about this thing so I mm-hmm. will but here are my limits because I think I get scared because I'm like oh I want to talk about all these things but I don't want someone to be like that's not your expertise but it's just nice to see someone else being like oh <laughs> I have learned that they're gonna say that anyway I did a video about AI and I said, I work with AI tools every day. I understand them, but I'm not going to teach you how to use them. And a lot of the comments were just like, I don't think you understand. I don't think you've ever used an AI tool. Um, So even though I said it, it doesn't come across. Yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm the worst case of this, but with climate, it's... um, Yeah, I imagine. Yeah, it's not not fantastic. (laughs) But also the topics that you're covering are then basically based on your own curiosity it's it's topics within subjects that you feel are within your wheelhouse that are within your lanes mm-hmm. but in, in a way are you making your videos for past you you could say that i'm literally just wow 
I'm interested in fluoride now. I'm going to talk about it. And I learn it for myself. And I would normally just be talking to like my friends or my partner or people at work about, did, did you know? Did you know about the Apollo missions? But now, now I just keep it in my little brain and then say it to a camera and keep people in my life from being annoyed with me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's another reason to potentially not pursue being a creator as a career choice, because it sounds like you like to follow your curiosity. And I think as soon as you start mm -hmm. to rely on, you know, what will get me lots of views and stuff, that yeah. can start to have an impact on following what you truly want to do, you know. Right. I do think that's a huge problem with physicists, mm -hmm. especially if you become reliant on income from talking about physics. It's almost required that you start clickbaiting people and talking about how like maybe the standard model is wrong. I thought this would be an interesting time just to mention these things called news values. And this is basically the characteristics a piece of news has to have in order to make it newsworthy. And they're not set in stone, but it's just things that change over time that make things more likely to be shown in the news. Which are going to vary over time and are going to vary from place to place, right? You don't report on a fire in a furnace, for example. Exactly, Simon. Great example. Um, but I think what's interesting with science communication is we can end up twisting stories so that they fit certain news values and are more likely to be published. So an example of a news value is unambiguity. We like things that are very clear, set in stone, and often science isn't. Another example is negativity. We like to read weirdly negative news for some reason. So often negative spins are put on things. There's all these different news values that are given. Personalization is another one. We say, this will relate to you. And it's just interesting seeing how those twist how we present our science. So when we're talking about physics specifically, when we're talking about a new discovery, it has to be the big thing. This is the proof of gravitational waves, or this is the proof that fusion power can work. And that isn't actually how most science works, right? It's incremental. Exactly. And that ties into another news value that's been given for the modern day, which is superlativeness. Everything has to be the big thing or the great finding. And you're right. It's not often the reality. The news values that are prioritised by certain publications might differ, especially because the audiences are different, right? So you'll have different news values potentially depending on different audiences. Back to Angela. That's another thing about being a science communicator and why I'm a little wary of doing it is because the physics community especially, like we have to deal with all those like ex-physicists who get on YouTube and I'm not going to say anybody's name to just be kind, but they kind of just lie and they act like we're not testing as much as we are or our experiments aren't as rigorous as they are or our math isn't as rigorous as it is and people want to watch that. They want to be like, I always thought there was something fishy about dark matter. And if you are relying on income from YouTube, I do think you have to be that person, which I don't want to do. You're right. This is why capitalism is bad, because it, yeah, it requires growth. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's not enough to make this much money. You have to make more money going forwards. And the way you do that is by radicalizing and making more and more extreme statements. And then you right. become Michio Kaku. Right. For those of you who aren't aware, Michio Kaku is a theoretical physicist, though he does really exist, and also a popular science writer. He's someone who has gone over a bit of a metamorphosis over his career in that he started out as a research scientist 
But the more science communication he's done, he's veered more into sensationalism and making claims about things like quantum computers that aren't true and he doesn't really have the expertise to back up. So it's kind of an example of a science communicator to the extreme, I guess. I see it too. I completely agree that you you see people just veer over time, uh, especially people who mm-hmm. start as scientists become more, I don't know, shock jock, like the appropriate term. Right. Like anyone who's agreed to be on Joe Rogan's podcast, it's like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. What do you think is happening? I had I actually had that in a comment the other day. Someone was like, hey, I don't know if you've actually listened to Joe Rogan's podcast. But, and I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dedicate the mental RAM to reading the rest of this five paragraph comment. Oh my. Oh, do you read your own comments? This is, we we ask the questions here. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Wow. I'm sorry. That was so rude. Wow. I'll step back. Little Miss, I'm not a science communicator. I think she can turn the Make tables. Make a note here in her file. <laughs> well, Simon, answer. Do you read your own comments? I mean, I read my own, but I don't have very many, so I can kind of get through them fine. What about you? Uh, I do. I actually had an incident in italics recently. On YouTube, I will read comments for the first day or two after a video comes out, which has actually been a very common response, interestingly, from people we've spoken to thus far, is that they read the comments from people who are engaged in the community. And so you get that early feedback. Mm -hmm. But after that, there's not much of value, really, which I agree with. But I recently started doing vertical content. And I just did a video like two weeks ago on Instagram. And I normally use my Instagram like everybody else does. Like, it's just my personal Instagram. But I thought, hey, I'll put a vertical reel up. We'll see what happens. And I actually had to turn off the comments because I was on my holiday and I was (laughs) arguing with idiots on Instagram about global warming. And it was just like, I don't know because it was on a different format like it was on a different website i actually had to like kind of re-engage that part of my brain that i'd previously you know settled on youtube however long ago that this wasn't really worth my time but wow it's a wild west and and i actually think instagram was worse than youtube i think youtube's comment moderation tools are actually very impressive especially when you compare them to places like instagram or, or even twitter god forbid i think also instagram the like the audience it pushes your stuff to it's frustrating isn't it because you're like oh this is reaching a new audience yes. and then you're like wow this audience is vocally <laughs> horrible but then there'll be lots of people who saw it Simon who didn't leave me in comments you have to remember yeah it's the and silent majority but anyway we ask the questions around yeah, here yeah exactly <laughs> right back at you Angela then do you read your comments I do just because I like to delete the ones that are really really bad mm-hmm. I can highly recommend shadow banning users rather than deleting comments oh yes I've been using that button it's great Because a lot of people will watch one video and they will watch all my videos and just leave paragraphs of comments that are just very mean. But there's also a lot of anti-Semitism for some reason. What? I don't know why. Maybe just because I'm talking about science, but it just comes up a lot. And I just, I don't want anyone to have to read that. So I've been reading the comments to delete them. How's your blocked word list? Have you got a a well-established blocked word list? Oh, I, I have not done any of that. Oh, You know what I'll do after this call, Angela? It was being shared in a sort of educational uh, YouTuber community, this like really long blocked words list. And I put it on my channel years ago and it is so great. There's things you wouldn't even think of. So I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you after this. That sounds amazing. Um, But yeah, and then things go in that like, well, then it's difficult because there's blocked words and then things go in that little separate thing that's like held for review. And then you have this thing of like, do I look at what's held for review? Do I do it? (laughs) Right. Anyway, this has been such a nice sort of fluid chat but I have a question I want to ask you right back about your process okay so 
I'm so intrigued about how scripted your videos are. Do you have bullet points? Do you just go with the flow of your ideas? You're such a natural <laughs> speaker. Is it scripted or is it secret? No, I have bullet points and I practice them a lot. So I work from home most of the time, but like twice a week I will go into work and I have to drive for 40 minutes. And so I just give my videos to myself <laughs> and if you do that two or three times, like it becomes very fluid, like you're having a conversation. So I know like the professionals have teleprompters and they know how to look at the camera and I don't do any of that. I just practice it and then say it again. I love that. What I thought was really interesting about your string theory video, there's lots of things that was really interesting about it, but the fact that you vocally drew attention to the fact that you were like, I'm just going to look at my notes here, like whilst you were playing the game. <laughs> was that a deliberate move to draw attention to the fact you had notes? Because you could have edited that out. Or, or was that just a practicalities thing? I guess I didn't think about it. I just had notes. <laughs> ah, interesting. I did see someone in the comments thought that I was pretending to play and talk. Like I had, was playing separately. Hmm. And then someone else was like, no, you can hear the clicks that match up with the gameplay. <laughs> and, and I was just like, why would anyone fake this? Like it was such a dumb idea. <laughs> This is a video about string theory and how it dominated science and physics media for like 30 years. And as a direct result of that, science communication is really hard now because they lied to us. They lied to us for 30 years and now we have to pick up the pieces. And I don't want to talk about string theory. I don't want to talk about the science, the math, all the stuff involved in string theory. I want to talk about the public response and the duty we have as professional researchers to communicate science accurately. And to distract me from doing the science, I'm going to play a game while I talk. And I've never recorded a video in a single sitting. So I hope it goes okay. But really, I did it because I get very emotional about the topic of science communication to bring it back. And I don't like what string theory did to physics. And I wanted to not get too deep into what string theory is and start writing math down because it doesn't matter to the topic. Like string theory is fine. <laughs> it's mm. fine. It's a real thing, but it just kind of misled the public for two decades. And I was upset about that. And so I thought it would be funny to also play a game to just keep myself to what I wanted to say. Oh, really? That's yeah. why you made that. that that's interesting. Because I, I was wondering if it was deliberate, you know, like trying to do a, a new format, like a new genre that no one else had done. I'm never going to do it again to anyone who subscribed to me for that. That, that was just for fun. I mean, <laughs> I could also never do it again. I got TechX, the first floor. I would never be able to do it again. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm on like YouTuber like forums and things. And they were like, here's what you got to do. You got to start doing playthroughs and you're a gaming channel now and I was like I don't want to do that yeah I mean I might play games but not in the same format you know right because that's the one that took off people were like yeah you need to do more of that right yeah there are like rules I think that people tell you where they're like well if that went big like drop everything and yeah. just do it again and I'm like but it wouldn't it would be lame no one would want to watch it this might not make it in the podcast, but when I did the video making an update saying that my dad had died of cancer, YouTube was like, mm -hmm. make more of this. Like, oh, no. 
this is the most successful video you've had in ages. Like, Simon, no. So thanks, wow. YouTube. Thanks, YouTube. Yeah, and then that's crap because then all your videos, your next nine videos afterwards yeah. will be on the low oh, out yeah. of ten. Like, you just can't beat the dad death video. You just can't beat it. Oh, man. <laughs> Good old YouTube. So what I, a question I did want to ask was, you're approaching a video, it sounds like, from a concept first. It's like, this is the subject you want to talk about. Do you have specific kind of learning objectives, like intended outcomes for it? Or is it more kind of free form? I think I make it, I try to make it. I don't know how it comes across as a story, usually. So I want to build up to something and then have it all come together at the end. I did this one about this biologist who faked all his research. And I kind of told it as like the timeline from the audience on Twitter, which was me. And then I doubled back and I was like, this is what was happening in the community. This is what the journals were doing and the other scientists who were trying to fact check. And it like kind of all weaved together very nicely. So I tried to do that, I think. Captain's Log. We appear to be in a star-forming region of space, a nebula. But instead of large, bloated, loud balls of gas, the stars being formed here are very different. They're stars of online educational video, making long-form content about science, geopolitics, and video games, among other subjects. That's right, Captain Picard. Nebula is a streaming service owned by a collection of creators, including Sophie and I, that hosts innovative, educational, and inspirational content from some of your favorite video and podcast makers. You can listen to all episodes of How to Make a Science Video ad-free on Nebula, but you can also watch exclusive content from other creators such as Our Changing Climate, Lindsay Ellis, Wendover Productions, and many more. Exclusive content includes individual videos from your favorite creators, but also entire series such as Jetlag and Red Atoms. Get access to Nebula by signing up at go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. That's our special How to Make a Science Video link, and by using it, you can get 40% off a membership plan and support the show. Again, that link is go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. Computer, put Nebula on the main view screen. Engage. When you make a video, do you think, I want the people who watch this to go away knowing this or thinking this or believing this? Any sort of objectives like that? Sometimes. I do all my stuff in PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm just such an amateur. So I make slides. <laughs> Don't be and shy. No, we've had people. You're the second person, PowerPoint. believe yeah. it or not. <laughs> All right. PowerPoint is so good, guys. Like you put stuff on and the AI tools, which, you know, it's fine as long as you check it. We'll just make the slide look really nice. It'll pick a font. And then I'm like, that's a great little theme, color scheme for this video. I just go through it. But sometimes I'll make a little card with like three things. And I'm like, this video is about three things. And I will repeat it a lot. For example, if I want you to know that relativity does not mean you go faster and you have more mass, you weigh more. That's not true. So I'll just say it a hundred times. And some people like that and some people don't. <laughs> and, and in terms of when you're thinking of an audience and how they kept walking away from it, do you have a specific audience in mind? Like, is there a, a person that you're talking to? No. I do try to like think like someone with a high school education level. So I don't want to get too in the weeds with things. Like if I'm talking about something complicated like relativity, I try to build up so that they can follow along. But that's also hard 
it's hard for me to rewatch the video and be like, would someone who stopped math at algebra be able to understand what I'm doing? But I try to think about that. Mm. Yeah, I find that really hard. I feel like when I first started making videos, I was really conscious of like, well, yeah, would they even know what this meant or this meant? And then you lose it a bit. And some videos, I feel like my videos really vary in the audience, mm-hmm. therefore, because it is hard to keep track of. I think it's wise to give yourself that limitation as well. Like if you try to make a video for absolutely everyone at every level of maths knowledge, like you can't talk about anything. Whereas if you at least have that assumption of, yeah, I'm going to assume you've done pre-calc or you've maybe had an mm-hmm. introduction to calculus, like, yeah, it, it, as soon as you impose a limitation, you can actually get something done, I think. Yeah. And to hark to a video you made on Gelman Amnesia, is that what it is? If I remember that name right? Yeah. Or Mangel, your real, like, complimentary one. Here's just a quick note on what the Gelman Amnesia effect is. Let's say you read an article on something you're an expert in, like physics. You think it's totally inaccurate and feel annoyed at how wrong it is. But then you turn the page and read about something that you're not an expert in, like economics, and assume that that one is correct even though it's from the exact same news outlet as the article that you thought was a load of rubbish. That's the Gelman amnesia effect, but to tie us back into the discussion with Angela, her video on the topic discusses the fact that experts can be dismissive of explanations that they deem too elementary, even if they're not the intended audience, and actually an elementary explanation could be exactly what's needed for that intended audience. If you decide who your audience is, if you get those comments like, well, actually, you should have described it in this thorough way, you can be like, no, no, this wasn't for you. And you fell <laughs> right. into the trap. I right. think it's a big source of insecurity. I think probably for everyone in this sphere, maybe, that there will be someone out there who knows more than you. And if they call you out for something, for me at least, it's very easy to feel like, oh, I'm the worst person in the world. I should have explained that in the thorough way. But do you feel like those are shackles that aren't on you? No, they're not shackles. Do you feel like those are bounds that aren't on you? I think I've accepted that it's a very human thing for a topic you're knowledgeable about to watch someone explain it. And no matter what they do, you're not going to like it because it's just you personally are like, I know a lot about this. I could do it better. And so when I see those comments, I'm like, well, it wasn't for you and I can move on. And I know they'll never be happy. Just like I do the same thing. It's fine. (laughs) But It is hard to read that. And I think that's why being a science communicator is hard because you want your peers to approve of what you're doing. You want them to say that is a good way to explain that physics concept. But they're never going to do that. (laughs) In my opinion, at least, they're just never going to be able to be like, okay, that was a good elementary explanation of that topic because that's not how they would do it. It's hard. I try to remember that I'm like that too. So. And then, so another question, what do you see your role as in the video? We've talked a bit about, you know, you kind of think of your audience, but in terms of who you are, do you see yourself as a curious student who's sharing something that you're excited about, kind of like you said, or do you see yourself as, oh, I'm an expert in this little thing that I've decided to research? I think about that a lot because there is that version of science communicator who like slides into frame and they're like, I'm so excited about this. And there's that version who's like standing in front of a whiteboard and they're like, I would put myself in the middle of that. Like I kind of have a conversation and I want to convince you to be excited about the thing I'm excited about. And it's very like calm. People say they watch my videos and fall asleep, which is fine. Do you take that as a compliment? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because 
Like, it's that kind of thing where you can look away for 10 minutes and then come back and be like, okay, I'm back. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I I would put myself as I'm having a conversation about something I'm interested in. You're like at the pub. Hey, I just learned this cool thing. Let me talk to you about it. And then you want someone to come away and be like, wow, I want to talk to other people about Gelman Amnesia. And I think that's something so appealing about your videos because you're not being like, here's some knowledge in your face. You're like, I like this thing. If you like this thing, join in. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that type of video because that stuff does really well. People like those like 60 second, like, oh my gosh, I just learned something about black holes. But that's just not my vibe. It also is such a limitation on what you can actually talk about. Like the fact that you've gone for, I assume it was a deliberate choice when you're going for a longer format because it actually allows you to talk about complexity. Yeah, definitely. And I think the length allows me to do lots of little vignettes on important things. So if maybe you just take one little thing away that I explained just exactly for your brain, then the video was a success. And all of that hopefully builds together by the end. When I wrote my book, my editor referred to them as dinner party facts. Like every chapter should have like a dinner party fact that at least someone will go away from like, oh, did you know that kind of thing? So that, that, that I like that. That's the similar, similar nice. vibe. <laughs> so if you also want dinner party facts to share with your friends, buy Firmament by Simon Clark. <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe a bit of a weird question. Isn't it? It's not a question I've asked anyone else, Angela. You just seem so like you are making these videos, but you're also just vibing with what you kind of want to make are you surprised that there's such an audience for it and so many people who are like really really into it I don't think you should be surprised but just from the way that you've made them like just vibing with what you want and even some of your earlier videos you're like to the hundred people watching this so did it surprise you that they took off I actually stopped doing that because it got embarrassing whenever I was like so if 500 people watch this and then way more people watched it and I was like it seems like I'm talking myself down when I don't mean to do that because I I am surprised anyone wants to watch it. I texted my partner in January. I was like, oh my gosh, I have like 500 subscribers. What we we should celebrate? What are we going to do? It's so exciting. And then it just like really built from there. I'm surprised. I'm surprised people like watch it right when it comes out. Like they're like, oh, my Saturday's gotten better. I'm going to watch this video. And I don't know why. I do make them just for me. I don't think I need the audience, but I like that they're there. Like, I do read the comments the first couple of days and, like, respond. And it's really interesting to see what people say. And there's a really fun communication aspect of that. But I'm surprised. It's weird. (laughs) I don't know why people are watching it. I mean, is the number of viewers, is that what success looks like? When you make a video and you put it out, is that, you know, if it gets more views than you're expecting. Is that success or is it what's in the comments that defines whether it's successful or something else entirely? I guess I'm not thinking in terms of whether or not it's successful. It's very much like a hobby. So it's like if you go out and like have a nice hike on a Saturday and you're like, that was nice. Like I put the video out and the people, they watch it. Some of them get watched way less, but I still like the video. I have made a few that I haven't posted because like I made them and I was like, oh, this is not good. Not going to post this one. (laughs) So I guess that's an unsecessful one. Um, Can you tell us about what they were about at least? Oh my gosh. Oh, I've done a couple where I've talked about movies and 
I'm actually, I just filmed a video on Lord of the Rings, which is totally not science at all, because I also like to talk about that stuff. But I made a video talking about science in movies and like how scientists are portrayed in movies. It was like an hour long and I watched it. I was like, I'm not saying anything in this video that's interesting. This is so bad. <laughs> like I had no point. I was just like, I'm annoyed. It was like basically a rant at the screen and I didn't post it and it was for the better, I think. <laughs> You should come back to that video in a couple of months because maybe mm. with some space you'll be like, wow, I am <laughs> dropping some truth there. Was Gandalf the scientist in Lord of the Rings? I'm trying to, like, what, what was the... No, there's no science in it. I just like Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. Talk <laughs> like, I'm going to post it. If this comes out in September, it's going to be up. So go watch my video on Lord of the Rings that has nothing to do with science. We'll see. Maybe it flops. It'll be 10 out of 10. <laughs> But you don't care because you're just vibing. I yeah, love that. it's fine. There's a lot of you in your videos. Like, you don't try to be, you know, objective. You are very clear that, like, you know, this is subjective. This is me, my opinions and everything like that. Do you think that by having so much of you in a video, and I'm not suggesting this is the case, but I'm curious about your opinion, does that undermine its ability to talk about the science as an objective kind of concept? Just a small question. Sorry, just to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, I would say that the layman, just the person who's not in science, thinks that science is very objective. They think it's logical, like choice, choice, choice. And they think it's not political. And none of those things are true. And so when I say something like, well, here's how I think about dark matter... And I say, because my PhD was on galaxy evolution, because that's how we do it in simulations. That's just a fact of how research works. And I do it on purpose because I think we should change the way we think about science. Because if you think science is like everyone's being their highest form of logical mm. computer brains, you're not going to realize why so much science is bad, <laughs> I guess. And people do, I'm sorry I keep talking about the comments. I'm like a baby YouTuber and I did not know what it was going to be like. <laughs> but no. people, people in the comments, will they'll very much be like, well, that's, that's not how, I liked this video until you got political. And I'm just like, science is political. Every single thing about it is political. I talk a lot about like women in science and being from an underrepresented group and the fact that only rich people get to do science and they're just like, that's not true. Ah. <laughs> Grump. So I would say if it undermines my point to be so objective, it's really highlighting my point that it has to be, I guess. That was such a good answer. I completely agree with all that. Like, yeah, like w in what world is any human like a truly an objective being? It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I had a different question. You obviously have a scientific background. You're a doctor. Did you do a postdoc as well? I did. Do you choose whether you pitch yourself as a scientist versus a science communicator in different circumstances? Oh, I would call myself a scientist all the time because mm. like, my mind is very much like I have a real job and this is for fun. So I would call myself a theoretical physicist. That's what I do for work and health insurance. And <laughs> I like doing that. I love my job. I don't think I would stop doing it. I no longer think of myself as an academic I think I left about a year ago. I had this really nice, fancy like fellowship and I was very like, oh, you'll get a job as a professor. And I just didn't want that. And as soon as I left academia, I was like, wow, 
done with that. (laughs) (laughs) You're a recovering academic. I guess, yeah. So now I think of myself as just a physicist, like that's my job. And I do this for fun. Maybe if this becomes a job, I don't know how that would happen. I would call myself a communicator first because I do think it's really important. It's really, really important to communicate science and it's so hard and it deserves so much respect and it's hard. So I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. (laughs) I feel like people are afraid to call themselves science communicators, like they left science behind, but it's not true and it's such a hard job and it's so important. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, and the two can coexist. You can be a scientist Mm -hmm. who's communicating science, but I think sometimes it feels like you've joined the other side, like, oh, now you're communicating science rather than doing science. Mm -hmm. How can you communicate if you're not doing? And then it gets all, like, rival Mm -hmm. factions. And anyway, so I think your answer made a lot of sense, actually. We finish these chats by asking our guests the same five rapid-fire questions, starting with... If I gave you a million dollars and you can't spend it on health insurance, (laughs) what video would you make with that money? Okay. I want to buy a optical microscope kit from Thor Labs and build it and talk about it. It costs $10,000. Right. So I don't know what I would do with the rest, but that's that's what I would do. That's 1% of the budget. 990,000 left. So that's as far as I got in that thought. I would do that, and then I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, My videos are very cheap to make because I just sit on the floor. So I don't think it would have any effect. Maybe I would make more videos because I could quit my job then. (laughs) Find something that costs $990,000 and put it under the $10,000 microscope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds perfect. Perfect. (laughs) That's so good. Okay, next question. What is one change you would make to YouTube to improve the site? It's the comments. (laughs) I think they should turn off comments after like three days. The first comments, like you get like, oh, nice comments. You get question comments. All great. You get negative comments. That's fine. I'm not saying negative comments are bad. But my little phone notifies me when I get comments. And because I want to check them to delete the bad ones, like if I, I don't know, who would ever do this in a video, mispronounce a word or something. Oh, no. I get reminded of it two or three times a day for seven <laughs> months. And it'll be months later. And I just get another, and I'm like, I know, I know I said it wrong. Why are you still telling me this? And it's not helpful. And I don't know what the type of person is that comments on YouTube, because I'm not a commenter. But scroll and read the comments before you make the same joke yeah. seven months later. Um, because the first few days of comments are all fine and good. And even the critical comments, like that's fine. It's totally fine. It's just like the same correction or the same joke for months and months and months. It's exhausting. I really like that as an idea of like, you freeze the comments after a certain threshold. Like I'd never considered that as a possibility before, but that I really like that as an idea. Mm. It's almost like freezing a live stream. Do you see the same thing where you get the same comments like months and months yeah, and months? Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like having a live stream. Like, you know, if you if you stream on Twitch, you know, that's just the comments. They're fixed in stone. Huh. I guess that's what you described as the YouTube version of that. I really like that. That would be cool. Can I just say though, Angela, it is your fault for pronouncing words wrong. So really <laughs> yeah. you should have done your reason. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Okay, next question. What do you think educational video, which could mean YouTube or it could mean other formats, will look like in 10 years' time? Okay, I don't want to brag, but I have a master's in secondary education. I taught high school for 88 days. I didn't last very long. So there's this trend, I think, in education, especially at higher ed, where people are trying to go from classroom instruction and instruction with peers and, you know, tutors all together in a room to saying, like, video can replace that. And I don't like that trend. But I think, like, just the cynical version of myself thinks that's what is going to happen. So you will have a standard, like, writing 100 course and you will have a standard physics course and you can fire all the professors because who cares what they do and you just give this to students and I know learning styles aren't real but I do think it's very very hard to learn material by yourself in a room staring at a screen and so I think this is a terrible idea but I bet that that happens as for like actual education content like YouTube videos, which like are helpful, I think. So if you go to a class and you learn the material and you go home and you just watch Hank Green or somebody explain it again to like make your brain better, I don't know how those will change because I don't watch that stuff. I know that they're great. I know that all those are really good. This is a terrible answer to this question. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Besides the doomsday of college education will be very bad and poor. I don't know. I thought it was a great societal level answer, actually. You're like, listen, guys, we live in a society. This is how it's going to change. Next question. Other than the three of us on this call, what is one or who is one creator that you think everyone should watch? And it doesn't have to be science or education-y or anything like that. Okay. There is a YouTuber who I just found, and I've been binging her content for like the last week. She's called Kathleen Illustrated. And she does thrift store content. She goes to thrift stores and looks for clown core. (laughs) And she she looks great. And even though she lives in Ohio, I think she's great. And I really (laughs) like her content. And I don't know, should I like tell her that I did this? (laughs) I don't know what the audience of this podcast, if you like that, if that sounds great, you would like her. She's great. Of all the things you could have said, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it was like there was levels to it. It was thrift store and then it was clown core. <laughs> it's like the double whammy of surprise. I yeah. love that though. I will be checking that out. Okay. And then finally, what's one video you think everyone should watch? Okay. The Dan Olson video about the metaverse. I think it's like the metaverse is a dead mall. And he really speaks to me on a level. I don't know. He's very like... The companies who make money but don't know why they make money are going to make the metaverse and they don't understand why no one wants to be on the metaverse. And so they're selling it, but there's no customer, but they're selling it to advertisers like it exists, but it doesn't exist and no one wants it. I think that's really interesting because there's this thing (laughs) where people, journalists, it's science communication, it always is. Journalists don't understand what the metaverse is. So when they have to write an article about the metaverse, they ask people who work at Meta and they're like, oh, it's going to change the world. It's a billion dollar thing. Everyone's going to love it. And so they write the article that says it's a billion dollar thing. Everyone's going to love it. And people who don't know what metaverse is read it. And they're like, I heard metaverse is a thing, but it's like, it's not. No one wants it. No one will ever want it. It's terrible. And I think if you think about science communication and watch that video, it will make a lot of things clear 
about a lot of the ways science communication works. Well, Simon, what do you think of that? I think it was fascinating talking to Angela because she's very much, her trajectory is meteoric at the moment. This year, she's exploded onto the SciComm scene on YouTube. And it was so interesting hearing how she um, approaches these projects. And I think my big takeaway was actually how I had overthought and overanalyzed how she was going about what she was doing. Because, you know, I asked, so the point about drawing attention to having a script, for example, I was like, oh, that must be a conscious choice. You know, you must have analysed this and made that conscious decision. And no, it wasn't. No. <laughs> I think, I think, especially as people with very academic backgrounds, we have this tendency to, yeah, overanalyze and make things fit. And, oh, this applies because of this model and you're trying to do this. And actually, no, she's just trying to talk about science and doing what she thinks is the most effective way of doing that without being analytical about it yeah i mean we've made a whole podcast about analyzing how people make videos <laughs> yeah in retrospect now you say that that is exactly what this is exactly what angela's has proved is that you don't need to do what we're doing in order to effectively communicate science yeah and it feels so refreshing to see someone just do something that feels so unique that they just fancy doing and like when she said oh, you should do more Let's Plays. That's what people told her. And she was like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that again. Like, how nice to have someone who isn't thinking the algorithm, the algorithm, the algorithm. Benefits of not doing it as a full-time job. That is true. Like, the fact that this isn't your full-time source of income means that, yeah, you have the flexibility to do something like that. And it, I think it improves the stuff that you're making. I certainly feel that the videos that I make are negatively affected by knowing, right, well, it can't be beyond this length. I can't look at these topics. I have to get it done by this date because I'm not going to get paid otherwise. Those are negative limitations. And as you say, it's refreshing to have someone who's just, I make what I want when I want to. And if you like it, great. And I think the stuff that she makes is great. What about you? What did you take away from the conversation? I agree. Angela's great. That's why <laughs> I took that away. I really liked her point about making science content and science communication for different audiences doesn't devalue what you're making like oversimplifying mm. something or just simplifying something is just a way of making it accessible for another audience and there's value in that and I think yeah it's so easy to overthink well is everyone going to be happy with what I'm making but it's that idea is as soon as you make something for everyone it's for no one yeah and there's value to making stuff. I mean, she mentioned Bill Nye, for example, or Neil deGrasse Tyson. There's value in aiming for young children in terms of getting them interested in science. Like, not all forms of science communication are aimed at you personally. And that's fine. That's actually a good thing. Yeah, I completely agree. And it doesn't become any less science. I am incredibly impressed by people that do science communication at, say, elementary school age or primary school here in the UK. Yeah. It's so hard to take concepts and distill them down to the point where they're still accurate just because they're simple you know doesn't mean you get licensed to say something wrong but you've got to really distill something down to its barest essentials and communicate one thing that's an incredible skill yeah it's like that series someone explains the same concept to five different levels yeah. of knowledge and that shows how difficult it is it, you know when you see people do it in that way so just seeing someone explain one of those levels should be just as impressive really. And I like as well the idea that as soon as you put a limitation on it, like this is for people at this level, it makes your life a lot easier when making a video. 
That's what yeah. I'm going to remember. Assuming that your audience has done pre-calculus. If they, they know algebra, exactly. suddenly you have a flaw that you can build off of. Completely agree. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Next time, we're talking to... My name is Brian McManus. I post on real engineering. I'm making videos for people like me that just like want the real nitty gritty detail. I try to treat the technologies as like a protagonist in a story. I try to get them interested in the technology at the start and then it goes through some sort of challenge in the middle of the story and then we find a solution towards the end of it. Thanks again to Angela for joining us. You can check out her videos on youtube.com slash at a Collier Astro. Thank you for listening to How to Make a Science Video, a Nebula podcast. The producer was none other than Simon Clark. Our music and editing were provided by Fergus Hall and our artwork by Lizzie Fiakovsky. If you enjoyed this episode, I really hope you did, please do recommend the podcast to your friends and rate us on your podcasting service of choice. Mm-hmm.